The first speaker this morning is Mr. Craig Cantoni, a friend of mine. He is also a very, very well-known maverick, and I emphasize the word maverick, newspaper columnist. He is the author of a book entitled Breaking from the Herd, Political Essays for Independent Thinkers by a Maverick Columnist. He has also written other volumes that you can look up on your handout there. He uses incisive wit, trenchant retorts backed up with carefully researched statistics to demolish all arguments in favor of big government. One can readily ascertain the theme or flavor of his writings by looking at how he signs his insightful emails. He signs his emails as follows. Craig Cantoni, then he puts brackets in capital letters, H-A-A-L-T, close brackets, which stands for Honest Americans Against Legal Theft. Thank you very much, Mr. Craig Cantoni. Uh, as a lead-off speaker, I hope I don't strike out today, uh, because the power hitters who follow me uh, will certainly get me home if I get on base. Uh, we have Jerry Smetinoff, a friend of mine. We also have Dr. Richard Dolinar and Eric Novak, all of whom are a very impressive lineup. And I'm really looking forward to the uh, luncheon debate today between the Cato Institute, uh, Michael Cannon, and also Jonathan Cohen of the, uh, of the New Republic. Uh, I have been a lifelong reader of political and moral philosophy, and I have yet to get a satisfactory answer to two questions. And maybe both those gentlemen will answer my two questions over lunch. The two questions are, number one, if it's immoral for a well-off individual to take my kid's piggy bank at the point of a gun to pay for his medicine, why is it moral for a group of well-off individuals to ask the government to take all children's piggy banks at the point of a gun to pay for their medicine under Bush's prescription drug plan. And number two, if it's immoral for an individual to force a physician into indentured servitude, why is it moral for a group of individuals to ask the government to force all physicians into indentured servitude under nationalized health care? So. It's customary for a speaker to begin with insincere remarks about how great it is to be speaking to such an illustrious group. Uh, I'm going to begin with sincere remarks, and my sincere remark is, it's great to be speaking to such an illustrious group. <laughs> there are few associations in the nation, and no medical associations that I'm aware of, that have the wisdom to understand that the nation is quickly shifting from individualism to collectivism, from self-reliance to dependency, from free markets to socialism, and from a constitutional republic to a majority rule or mob rule democracy. AAPS not only understands the trend, but courageously fights it, knowing what will happen to American prosperity and freedom if it isn't stopped. For those of you 
uh, unfamiliar with AAPS's wisdom, you can find brilliant economic and political commentary in AAPS News. Its four pages are, e are even better than an entire issue of the excellent Chronicle of Liberty Reason magazine. The title of my talk is Confessions of a Corporate Insider, Why American Business Opposes Market-Based Medical Care. To qualify my remarks, I'll be speaking about big business, not small business, because small business generally uh, believes in free markets. I'll begin in 1955, when the president of General Motors, Charles Wilson, made his famous remark at a Senate hearing. He said, what's good for the country is good for General Motors, and vice versa. Now, 51 years later, what's good for General Motors is not good for the country. That's because what's good for GM in the short term is to offload its pension liabilities on the public and to nationalize its medical costs. If national health care were enacted tomorrow, I have no doubt that GM executives would be dancing on their desks in Detroit. It would be better, of course, for the country if GM uh, had a, made its employees responsible for their own retirement and medical care. But that would require rescinding thousand page, thousands of pages of the tax code and laws like ERISA. Before that happens, GM will be bankrupt or bought out by another company. Many large American companies now embrace a modern form of mercantilism. Mercantilism took hold in Europe near the end of feudalism. It was an economic system in which the government regulated the economy and foreign trade on behalf of rent seekers and with the objective of limiting ex imports and maximizing exports. It was based on the belief that economic competition was a zero-sum game, a common, commonly held belief today. Thanks to Adam Smith and other classical economists, mercantilism was supplanted in America by free markets. Today, about half of the economy is regulated by the government, so in that sense, we are half mercantilists. As a result, many companies are dependent on the government for their existence and use government regulations to gain a competitive advantage over smaller upstarts. Accordingly, they spend a lot of time and money paying homage to their overlords in Washington. At the same time, a large number of corporate employees have become de facto agents of the government. I was one of them. Like physicians who walk away from Medicare money because they can no longer stomach being a de facto agent of the government, I walked away from a lucrative corporate career over 10 years ago because I could no longer stomach being a government agent. Unfortunately, many of my peers, of my former peers, can not only stomach being government agents, they relish the big bucks they make as apparatchiks who interpret and enforce government regulations in the workplace. Unlike physicians, my expertise is not fixing people. My expertise is fixing large organizations. I know how to make organizations more efficient, more profitable, more competitive, and more motivating, motivating places to work. Unfortunately, as the years went on over my career, I found myself doing less and less of what I liked to do and what I was skilled at doing and doing more of what I disliked to do and didn't require much intelligence or skills. And that was administering government-mandated paperwork and complying with government regulations, especially with respect to medical insurance. Sound familiar? 
The last straw for me came in the form of a phone call from, a, from one of the 10 division presidents of the large industrial corporation uh, uh, that I worked for and where I was a vice president of human resources, benefits, communications, safety, and some other stuff. Uh, I was a corporate weenie, in other words. But The call was typical of how I spent much of my day. The division president called to complain about his escalating medical costs and how the costs were devouring his profits and making his division uncompetitive in world markets. I explained what I had done and was planning to do to reduce the costs, including analyzing claims data to see where most of the money was being spent, eliminating certain covered procedures, increasing co-pays and deductibles, requiring employees to pay more of the premiums, requiring second opinions and peer reviews, and shifting to managed care, all in a way that we hoped would not trigger a union organizing attempt. Of course, all of those Band-Aids wouldn't overcome the fatal flaw with employer-provided insurance, namely that it leads employees to believe that they are spending someone else's money and therefore are insensitive to cost. As if to prove the point, the division president called me back a week later, once again wanting to talk about the medical plan. This time, however, he was angry that his wife's $200 insurance claim for cosmetic surgery had been rejected. I explained that cosmetic surgery wasn't covered by the insurance plan, but that if he felt so strongly about the matter, I would take his request to the Benefits Review Committee, where I knew it would be rejected. Being a corporate politician, I didn't say what I wanted to say. I wanted to ask him if he had cognitive dissonance, <laughs> and thus didn't realize that he was holding two conflicting beliefs. One, that medical costs were killing his division and should be reduced. And two, that he shouldn't pay for his wife's cosmetic surgery out of his own pocket, although he made a quarter of a million dollars a year. I really wanted to uh, tell him that psychiatric disorders were covered by the medical plan. <laughs> Years later, after I, had, after I had published my management book and started my consulting business, I had a similar experience when I was a keynote speaker at a conference of CEOs uh, from industrial companies. The theme of my talk was that it was a lose-lose for employers to provide medical insurance and that the people in their room should start lobbying Congress to jumpstart a true consumer market in medical insurance and medical care. One of the CEOs jumped out of his chair and with his face turning red, pointed his finger at me and said, I had triple bypass surgery last year and didn't have to pay a dime. You're not taking my company medical insurance from me. I thought the guy was going to croak. <laughs> but I digress. Let me return to the phone call with the division president. After that phone call, I began asking myself questions that I had never asked in my career. Why is it any of my business if someone's wife has cosmetic surgery? Why should I know which employees have AIDS or some other disease? Why am I coming between employees and their physicians? Why should someone like me who knows absolutely nothing about medicine dictate what doctors can and can't do? 
And why do employers provide medical insurance when they don't provide auto and homeowners insurance to their employees? Quick, aren't I? <laughs> it, only, it only took me 15 years to come to those questions, which shows how readily we all accept the status quo. After all, employers always provided medical insurance, didn't they? Well, of course, as I found out, employers provide medical insurance only, bec only because of a short-sighted government policy during the Second World War, a policy that killed a consumer market in medical insurance and medical care. Later, in 1965, a stake was driven through the dead consumer market with Medicare, thus ensuring that the market could never be fully resurrected. Guess who benefits the most from employer-provided uh, medical insurance, or I should say, from getting their insurance with pre-tax dollars? Of course, the answer is that those in higher income brackets. And who is in the higher income tax brackets? Corporate executives, of course, including the aforementioned division president. Millions of rent seekers also benefit from employer-provided medical insurance, including employee benefits managers and administrators, benefits consultants, tax consultants, actuaries, ERISA attorneys, producers of record-keeping software, and publishers of benefits forms and booklets. Many of those rent seekers are Republicans who rail against big government, but who, in the privacy of the voting booth, would never vote to give up their regulatory rice bowls, which keeps them in Gucci loafers and Lexus automobiles. Many others are Democrats who shed crocodile, deer, uh, crocodile tears about the uninsured and the growing wage gap, but who, in the privacy of the voting booth, would never vote to give up the regulatory rice bowl, which dries up the cost of medical insurance and lowers wages by substituting medical insurance for wages. They remind me of what Euripides said in 14, 413 B.C., often a noble face hides filthy ways. One of my Wall Street Journal articles, The Case Against Employee Benefits, was published in 1997. It gave statistics on the shift from cash compensation to benefits, especially medical insurance. Here's an excerpt. From 1971 to 1991, the cost of medical care rose almost 70% faster than inflation. As a result, the cost of all fringe benefits has soared to 40% of total compensation compared with 17% in 1955. Corporations spend almost 12% of total revenues on employee benefits versus 4.4% in the 1950s. The average employee's benefit program, including payroll taxes, costs just under 15000 The article went on to explain how medical benefits corrupt the employer-employee relationship. Let me read. Company-sponsored medical insurance creates a paternalistic relationship. The employer plays the role of, of the munificent parent who protects the employee child from the vagaries of life, a role at odds with the economic decisions of running a business. It also gives employers reasons to intrude on the most personal aspects of their employees' lives, from a family's medical history to a worker's sexual orientation in the case of domestic partner coverage. Once involved with such personal matters, it seems perfectly natural for employers to devote precious time and energy to matters of health and lifestyle by offering smoking cessation programs, stress reduction classes, cholesterol screenings, and health awareness lectures and, and newsletters about diet and nutrition. But whatever goodwill such nannyism might generate, it evaporates as soon as the employer increases premiums, 
switches managed care networks or denies a claim. After uh, the earlier piece, I was lambasted by the president of the Society for Human Resources Management, a professional uh, association with nearly 150,000 members, most of whom are de facto agents of the government. After the later piece, only one company contacted me to express agreement with what I had written and to share ideas. Think of that. The Wall Street Journal has a circulation of about a million and a readership that's probably close to two million. Yet only one company liked the article enough to contact me. Guess which company contacted me? Let me give you a hint. It is one of the most vilified companies in America. It is also a company that has a well-designed medical plan that ensures more employees than probably any company in the country. Any guesses? Bingo. Walmart. Walmart, uh, when it has to issue benefits communications to its employees, has to order the paper by the train load. But the perception is Walmart doesn't give medical insurance to its employees. Let me give you an aside here. One of the few uh, free market columnists for the Arizona Republic, Bob Robb, compared the percent of Walmart employees who are part-timers without medical insurance to the percent of Bash's employees who are part-timers without medical insurance. Those of you from out of town, uh, Bash's is a large Arizona uh, supermarket chain owned by a liberal's liberal, Eddie Basha, who once ran for governor. Uh, He's considered a progressive employer. Um, As I recall, about 11% of Walmart employees are part-timers without medical uh, insurance versus about 8% of Bash's employees. But Walmart is vilified and Bash's is not, although only three percentage points separate the two, probably because Walmart hires more retirees. As another aside, I believe that one of the reasons Walmart is vilified in the press while other supermarket chains are not is that supermarket ads are a major revenue stream for newspapers, but Walmart does little newspaper advertising. Now, even Walmart has begun to pay homage to Washington. It has dramatically increased its spending on government relations and public relations. Of course, the coziness between big business and big government is nothing new. It existed throughout the 20th century. The Cato Institute detailed the history in its August 2006 policy report. Let me give you three examples. Number one, under Teddy Roosevelt, the leading steel companies met on November 21, 1907, to set prices with the Justice Department present at the meeting. Number two, on February 15, 1909, Andrew Carnegie wrote a letter to the New York Times advocating government control of the steel industry. His hidden agenda was to drive more efficient producers out of business. And number three, in 1917, under Woodrow Wilson, a coalition of business and industry Uh, named the uh, War Industries Board, began to take control of the economy. FDR tightened the control during World War II, instituting the wage and price controls in 1942 that led to employer-provided medical insurance and the mess we are in today. A year later in 1943, well, something else happened in 1943. What else happened in 1943? Yes, how about that, huh? Well... Something more infamous happened in 1943. 
that was the year in which the man most responsible for big government came up with the idea that would forever transform the nation into a kleptocracy. Without him, the 16th Amendment would be toothless. No, it wasn't FDR. He comes in a close second. Do you know who it was? Let me give you a hint. He was the chairman of the Federal Reserve at the time and, of course, a former business executive. Anybody know who he was? Huh? No. No. Close. Close. Because he believed, the, Friedman believed the same thing at the time and has regretted it ever since. Anybody know? Huh? No. You're, I want to mention Morgenthau, no. Say that again? Bingo, you get the award. <laughs> Alan Corwin. Thank you, Alan. Yes, it was Beardsley Rummel. He was the former treasurer of Macy's, where he had instituted purchasing uh, products on the installment plan. He applied the practice to income taxes, uh, giving, thus giving birth to withholding, which is the immoral policy of confiscating workers' wages before they even receive them. The immoral policy. In 1943, a Gallup poll showed that only 5 million of the 34 million people subject to a higher wartime income tax were saving to make their annual tax payment on March 15th, which was the income tax filing date back then. Somebody mentioned uh, Henry Morgenthau. Well, Treasury Secretary Henry Morgenthau asked how the government was going to arrest millions of people for non-payment of taxes. Rommel's idea turned every employer into a tax collection agency. When I'm asked for one change that would frighten the political class more than anything else and return the, company, the country to its constitutional roots of limited government, my answer is to rescind Beardsley Rommel's withholding and go back to the pre-1943 system of Americans writing a check for their income taxes. My son came into my office last night, and I snarled at him. And he says, why are you in such a bad mood? I said, well, I have to pay something that's called estimated quarterly income taxes, which are due tomorrow. I even have to pay him for my 84-year-old mother, who has paid taxes on the same income probably 40 times in her life, but she has to pay it also. But anyway, if we were going to rescind Beardley's... Beardley's uh, immoral idea, there is no doubt in my mind that big business would fight the change, including companies that are touted as great places to work. Imagine that. Employers who say they care about their employees would side with the government in confiscating workers' wages. That's no surprise if you look at the kinds of foundations supported by large companies. The August edition of Foundation Watch analyzed contributions to nonprofit foundations by Fortune 100 companies. It found that donations to left-leaning foundations outstripped those to right-leaning ones by a ratio of 5.8 to 1. Granted, some of the giving is an extortion payment to leftist rabble-rousers who can stir up trouble for companies, and some of it is to bolster a company's image with the anti-capitalist segment of the population. But much of it reflects the, politi the political leanings of the CEO. For example, New Jersey Governor John Corzine is the former head of Goldman Sachs. 
when he was a U.S. senator, he spoke at a health care rally where the audience was holding signs that read, health care, not special interest handouts. Wake up, Walmart. I guess the audience believed that Goldman Sachs is more of a friend of the proletariat than Walmart is. We're nearing the end of my time, so let me summarize what I've covered. First, it's not so much that big business actively oppose, opposes market-based uh, health care as it is that relatively few companies will endorse it for four reasons. One, executives like the favorable tax treatment of their employee-provided insurance. Two, many lower-level employees want to keep their regulatory rice bowl. Three, companies want to be seen as progressive employers. And four, companies don't want to upset their government handlers. This doesn't mean that apps should stop trying to influence business. Rather, it suggests that you will have better success trying to influence small business instead of big business. Before I close, let me tell you how the story about the division president ended. One of my last acts before resigning from the company as a de facto government agent was to get the board of directors to approve a policy of neutralizing the favorable tax treatment that high-paid executives receive for their medical insurance. The policy required them to pay higher premiums than lower-paid employees, or I should say, the same out-of-pocket costs as lower-paid employees. I would have preferred doing away with the income tax code entirely, but I didn't have any power over that. My little act of sabotage was a fitting end to my career as a government agent and a wonderful payback to a jerk. <laughs> Uh, thanks for listening. I hope I didn't strike out.